Let's pray together. Father, You are good and faithful and true and kind and merciful. Your gentleness toward us is special. Your faithfulness toward us we treasure. Help us this morning to yield our heart, our mind to You, that You might direct us, that You might fill us, that You might sustain us for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, please. What defines a real man? It's not muscles. It's not flowing hair. It's not a big old cigar stogie type deal. It's not tattoos. It's not being able to put back a six-pack or having a six-pack. It's not having a six-figure income. It's not being able to leap small buildings with a single bound. We have romanticized what masculinity and true manhood is in our country and really around the world. And what the world has declared as true manhood is nothing really descriptive of how God describes manhood. Real manhood is learning of our desperate need for the only one who can make us whole. A real man is one who allows the king to rule his heart both inside and outside of his home. A spirit-filled man who has Jesus ruling as king in his heart will be reflective of the life of his Savior. And we've been asking this question over and over for the last few weeks, and it will continue to be our question in various ways in coming weeks. Do you let the king in your home? Do you let the king in your home? We cannot anticipate a fruitful home. We cannot anticipate a blessed home. We cannot anticipate a protected home. We cannot anticipate a home that is reflective of the life of our Savior unless first our lives are submitted to the King Himself and we allow the King to rule supremely in us. The reality is, when we are at the helm, we have no stability, no security, and no fruitfulness. When Jesus is at the helm, that's when we have security, stability, and fruitfulness. Do you allow the King to rule in your home. We cannot just leave Him at the doorstep. We can't just have Jesus as King when we come to church. Or when we're out in public where people can see us. You see, we can put on a face in front of people, but when we're in our home, we are exposed because we let down our guard. We're with those with whom we are the most comfortable And so they see who we really are. If Jesus does not rule in my home, He really doesn't rule when I leave the home either. And friends, you can sing all about Jesus' crowns. You can proclaim, crown Him! Crown Him! Crown Him, Lord of all! 
But if Jesus isn't king in your home, that comes from fleshly lips. And it really doesn't please him at all. You remember in the book of Amos? Maybe you haven't read Amos for a little while. But you'll remember in chapter 5, God tells Israel to stop singing. Stop singing. It's only noise. You see, singing praise songs from the flesh does not accomplish worship except for self-worship. The only time we truly worship is when Jesus rules supremely as King in our lives. We surrender to the Spirit. And so what we've been seeing in Colossians chapter 3 is that the King can enable the very things that God demands in the home. The King Himself can enable the very things He demands in the home. Last week we discussed the wonderful privilege of a role that the wives have. And what we noted is this, the king will enable wives to place themselves under the care of their own husbands. We see that in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's right before the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. But the king enables that which he provides. Which he which he calls for. He enables it. We began to touch on, as we ended our time last week, that the king will enable husbands to selflessly love their wives. The king will enable husbands to selflessly love their wives. We we see the demand. We see the, the call. We see the prescription here. Husbands, love your Wives, that's the call. But anything God calls for, He supplies. And He's already told us how. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with Him in glory. And He tells us to mortify, therefore, the deeds of the the body. He tells us to put off the old man. And He tells us, you've already put on the new man, in, in verse 10. And then He tells us, listen, as the the chosen of God, you who are holy because of Jesus... You who are loved because of Jesus, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Why would we have to forgive one another? Because there will surely be offense. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. We're putting on something that doesn't belong to us. These tender mercies, this kindness, this humility, 
this meekness, this long-suffering. It doesn't belong to us. It's not like we're developing these fruits in our lives. No, He tells us to put them on. They don't belong to us. They belong to Jesus. They belong to God. He is the one who produces this fruit. And so we, we robe ourselves in His fruitfulness. The King will enable husbands to selflessly love their wives. We could continue with that line of reasoning, but we've already, we've already studied through this. We're at verse 19. This is the call this morning, men. Ladies, you're not off the hook, right? Because all Scripture is profitable for you as well. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. What I want to do is start with the prohibition first, the end of the verse, and then we'll move to the prescription, which is the beginning of the verse. The prohibition is this, do not be bitter toward them. Do not be exasperated by them. Do not deal bitterly with them. Or as the ESV uh, translates it, do not be harsh. Bitterness. What? Why does God... Here He is. He's already told us all about these Christian virtues that we're to put on. Why does He tell the husband, love your wife and don't be bitter toward her? Why does He make this assumption that there'll be this bitterness or this harshness? He knows... He knows us. He remembers our frame that we're dust. And so he knows that there'll be this propensity toward bitterness. If we take it from the the standpoint of bitterness, maybe your wife neglected some part of her responsibility. You guys have divvied out the responsibilities. You do these activities. She takes care of these things. And and you come home and she hasn't done all the things that, that she's really bargained to do. And you think, what's the deal? Why isn't this done? Bitterness. Or, maybe she approached something that she's been given as one of her tasks, like you've approached something that you've been given as one of your tasks. She approached it differently than you think. Or even, even than you advised. Isn't there a possibility that there might be some bitterness that might creep up in that situation? Well, I told you this is the way to do it. I told you this, this is the order, or this is the way, this is the process. Isn't it possible that there might be some bitterness that could creep in? And what I tell you, friends, is this. A delegated responsibility means you let them do it. Right? Same thing for you, ladies. If when you guys divvy out the, the, the responsibilities and, and your husband has his, and you say, well, this is how you should do it, a delegated responsibility means let them do it. They might not do it in the order that you would. They might not do it in the way that you would. Just let them do it. Bitterness could come. What about harshness? Now, one, one translation is bitterness. And that's a good translation. Harshness is also a good translation. Why, why would a husband have this tendency to be harsh? The concept of harshness would be being sharp with your words or your actions. Think of it this way. When you are harsh with your wife, in word or deed, edgy, straightforward, or um, a sharp, I think is, is a good term. Just, just kind of abrupt by the way you say things. You're barking things out as if you are the, the commander. When, when you're barking these orders out, it does one of two things. You ready? It either crushes them, or it provokes them to anger. 
I want you to think about this for a moment, men. God is giving you a, pres- a, a, a uh, prohibition. Don't be like this. What happens when, we, when we're harsh with our wife and she is of the type that it's, she's crushed? When you crush your wife with your harshness, you cause her to lose all motivation for her family. You realize that? Motivation is gone. On the other side, maybe your wife isn't the, the, the wilting type. Maybe she's not the crushed type. Maybe when you're harsh with her, it provokes her to, to anger. And so she responds to your harshness with anger. You know how she responds. And here she is. She responds to you in this anger. And you know what it does? It crushes all your motivation for the family. Either way, your provocation, either way, your bitterness, either way, your harshness is providing for someone in this home to lose their motivation for their family. That is not a good place. Friends, when we lose motivation for our family, to fight for our family, to live for our family, to live for the Lord, because we can't live for the Lord if we don't live for our family. You realize that? You can't say, oh yeah, I love God. I'm going to obey God. I just can't stand these people He's placed me with. It doesn't work that way. It's one or the other. You either love God and love your family in spite of all of their flaws, or you despise your family because of their flaws, and you don't love God. You can't have it. You can't mix this up. Love God and my family, or just love myself, essentially, is the problem. Harshness and bitterness. God is prohibiting this because harshness is the absolute opposite of one of our responsibilities to our wives, which is to honor them. We're going to get to that as we go along this morning. One of our responsibilities is to honor our wives. Harshness is the absolute contrast. It's the opposite of that. So now we, we talk about harshness. Well, okay, so we, we've got all this in our mind. At least it's kind of swirling anyway. What is the prescription? What is he calling us to do? Husbands, love your wives. The word there is agape. You're familiar with that. It's a self-sacrificing, unconditional love. You want to know what that looks like? You want to know what that agape looks like? You do, don't you? You've seen it. You've seen it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. When God said, I love you, He said, I will sacrifice My Son. How, how drastic is this? Well, Romans 5.8 gives us a further picture of this, another insight into this. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst... God said, I love you. 
This is the pattern that Jesus has set for husbands. It is a tall order. I might follow that up, and I think you've known me enough to know what I mean when I say this. That is an impossible order. It's impossible. Except by grace. Except by His Spirit, who He's poured out into our lives at the moment of our salvation. That's the only reason we have any shot at perfectly fulfilling this demand. Men, God has given you what you need. God has given you what you need to be the loving husband that you've been called to be. God has given you what you need. He didn't just give you instructions on a page. He gave you Himself. He is more than enough. He is more than enough to allow you to love your wife and not be harsh toward her. To love your wife and not be bitter toward her. He's given you more than enough. Last week we started this portion and we mentioned that our love for our wife is to mirror Jesus' love for His church. In that way, it should be selfless, it should be sacrificial, and it should be sanctifying. Those, were, uh, those are elements of that love. This love manifests itself in five ways we'll talk about. and We're going to try to move ourselves through this rather uh, succinctly. First of all, and we mentioned it last week, so I'm just going to remind you, listening. Listening. You can't love your wife and not hear what she's saying. You must listen. That is a way that our love is demonstrated. Secondly, by nurturing or nourishing. Same concept, that word nourishing or nurturing, it goes together. Take a look with me please at Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment. Ephesians 5 is a far more exhaustive in its description of the husband's and wife's responsibilities. Colossians kind of gives the summary lines. Ephesians fills it out. And in Ephesians, we see that the husband and his love for his wife is then described following it. Verse 25 is where we'll pick it up. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word that He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, when you are expressing love for your wife, you are really demonstrating the value of that oneness, that unity that is yours between the husband and wife, that God took two and made them one. When you love your wife the right way, you're loving yourself because God has joined you together. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Nourishes. That word nourish is the same word that Paul will use in just a few verses later in chapter 6 and verse 4 when he talks about bringing your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up. Bring them up. The term is nurture. And what I'd like to kind of put in your head as, as a word picture is, is blossom. 
allow your wife to blossom. Allow her to be everything that God has called her to be. She can blossom into the most beautiful, beautiful flower if you will allow her to be. In, how do we prevent that? Harshness. Bitterness. Manipulation. Distorted leadership. We cause her to wilt. When he tells us to nourish them, he's talking about allowing them to become everything that God intends them to become. And, and I'd like to, to think about this as you turn to Psalm 23. I think the way that we can really see ourselves fulfilling the mandate of nourishing our wives is as we consider how God shepherds us. Now I'm not saying we are our wives' shepherd. God is her shepherd. But we want our nourishing of our wife to mirror the way that God shepherds us. We'll find out how to really nurture them and how to make them blossom or allow them to blossom as we see how God allows us to be nurtured and blossomed. Psalm 23, it's very familiar. You may have it memorized already. Meditate on it as we go through. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have everything I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now again, we're not talking about substituting ourselves for the real shepherd. There's only one. We're rather pointing our spouse, we're pointing our wife to and reflecting the real shepherd. Take it this way, a couple of bullet points on the screen behind me. Husband should provide comfort and safety. Your wife shouldn't be wondering. She shouldn't be wondering where your heart affection lies. Husband should provide spiritual refreshment. Again, they are not the source of that spiritual refreshment. They're pointing you to the source of refreshment. But they are pointing. Husband should provide guidance and direction. They're not flawless. They don't know the end from the beginning. But men, though we don't know the end from the beginning, we should seek the Lord. We should seek wisdom from the Lord. And the Bible tells us that if we seek wisdom, when we ask in faith, guess what He does? He gives us that wisdom we need. Husbands, as shepherds of their wives, need to be encouraging, 
comforting and sensitive. Guys, that's not easy for us. Is it? We're kind of gruff. Kind of straightforward. I'm a say it like it is kind of guy. You know, that kind of guy. That's, that's, that's our nature. Let me ask you a question. Are you seeking a natural wedding, um, a natural marriage? Or are you seeking a supernatural one? That sensitivity doesn't come of your own resources. It doesn't come because someone told you, hey, listen, be sensitive. It comes by being connected to the shepherd, by abiding in him. That's when you will be comforting, encouraging, and sensitive. Husband should provide, protect, tend to the hurts, and bless their wives. Nourishing. This is one of the ways that we love our wives. By listening, by nourishing. Thirdly, by leading. By leading. Well, let's talk about the negative first, and then we'll go to the positive. Some fail at leading. They fail by omission. Omission. By what they don't do. A failure to lead men is failure. They don't take leadership. They don't say, hey dear, this is the right way to go. This is the right way to think. This is, this is the one to whom we should look. When we don't take that leadership, we are failing. Some fail by commission. That means by what they do. Some fail because of that harshness, that demanding, demeaning, inconsiderate methodology. You call that a dictatorship. This kind of a, for lack of a better term, failing leader interprets every kind of disagreement as a lack of submission. Men, learn that you can be wrong sometimes. You can be wrong. And your wife can tell you you're wrong. That's not being unsubmissive. That's being smart. She's telling you, listen, that's not the right thing to do. This is the right way to go. And the leader, a real leader says, you know what, dear, I'm going to listen, I'm going to think, I'm going to pray, I'm going to meditate, we'll we'll reconvene on this. Considers it. And a real leader then acts based on that information, not ignoring it. That's the negative. Positive. What, What kind of a loving leader should this husband be? We'll take a look at Romans chapter 15 for a moment. First of all, a loving leader should be others-centered or others-oriented. Romans 15, we'll take the centered out of it. I didn't write it that way. That was just a misspeak there. Others-oriented, where Christ-centered, others-oriented. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We then, who are strong, that's us men, right? (laughs) No, it's just talking about strong people that are growing in their faith with the Lord. It can be a man or a woman, okay? We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples, (laughs) it's a great word, the misdeeds, 
incorrectness, incorrectness, the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so we see this concept of what Christ was like. And and this is not a, a passage for men, but it does apply to men's leadership, doesn't it? Yes or no? So it's not a passage only about men. It's not saying the men are the strong ones. That's not the point. But in our position as leaders in the home, if we're going to be loving leaders, this applies to that. It tells us that we need to consider others. That we need to not please ourselves. Instead, recognize that even Jesus didn't please himself. So not only must we be others-oriented, we must be humble. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm just making the assumption, men, you're sitting here, I'm making the assumption that you want to be the kind of husband that God would have you to be. That assumption may be a false assumption, it might be a bad assumption, but that's the assumption I'm going under. You want to be a good, godly leader. You want to be a loving leader. You want to be the one that, that, that listens to your wife, that nurtures your wife, that leads your wife. It, it comes by being oriented to to recognizing her needs and and recognizing what's best for her. It also necessitates humility. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on uh, the form of of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found... In appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Back to verse 5, let this mind be in you. If we're going to be the kind of leaders for our home, for our wives, that God is calling us to be, we need to be the kind of leaders that reflect our Savior, the King. Does the King rule in your home? Or do you? I'm the king of this castle. I wear the pants in this family. Oh, really? I suggest you take your pants off. (laughs) And give them to King Jesus. Crown him in your home. I know that was a silly wording, but I I, I hope that it did accomplish the point. Because while it was silly, I had a deathly seriousness to it. Too many times I've heard talk, people talk about who's wearing the pants in the family. Guys, get it in your head now and forevermore. You're no better than your wife. Dads, get it in your head right now. You're no better than your children. Jesus died for your wife. Jesus died for your children. You are not superior to them. You have a blessed role. And that blessed role is to point to Jesus as King and to reflect Jesus as King. You'll reflect Jesus as King through the love that comes by His Spirit by listening and nurturing and leading. We exemplify Him. We must. There's another way in which we must exemplify that this love and it's by learning. 
Take a look, please, at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The context is always a context, right? In chapter 2, he's telling us to live for the sake of the world that, that speaks insults against you, that those very ones that speak insults against you, not only would they be silenced, but rather that they would have mouths that are opened, but mouths that are open to praise God in the day of visitation. And he goes on to tell us that Jesus is the, the example for how this is done. For even when he was, was being tried, he kept his mouth shut. And he committed himself to him who judges righteously. And then he goes on and he talks to the, the wife of an unsaved husband and tells her how she should live. Living the gospel quietly. Demonstrating a meek and quiet spirit. And then he transitions to the husband and he says, likewise, if you're going to be the kind that demonstrates the gospel, if you're going to be the kind that... that may even win your wife without the, the constantly barking out the gospel. You can, you can live the gospel. He says in verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the precious vessel. It says weaker, but it's precious is the idea. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, if you do not do this, your prayers will be hindered. I know I changed the wording. I just want to make sure everyone's understanding what's being said there. Guys, you want a surefire way of not walking with God? You want a surefire way of having the heavens be brass and your prayers bounce back on your own head? Violate what verse 7 is talking about here. You can be sure God won't hear you unless you cry out for repentance, in repentance. What is he telling us to do? He's telling us to learn our wife. You ever try to figure out a woman? They are odd. Did you know that? They're really strange. What is God talking about? Do we have to know like all of, <laughs> how everything works inside of them? No. You'll never figure all those things out. But He does want us to understand her, to seek to identify her giftedness, her abilities. He does want us to learn her likes and dislikes, to learn her fears, and concerns to learn her strengths and her weaknesses to learn what will make her flourish to learn what will make her blossom this is your job husbands what makes my wife thrive and making every effort by God's grace to put them in that scenario that makes them thrive. 
He's not saying you're going to be able to figure out all the cycles and everything that goes on with that. He's talking about learning who she is in her inner person, her inner woman, and what God wants to do in her life. That's a tall order. But don't miss this last one. Listening, nourishing, leading, learning, honoring. Oh, we like to not hear, but there there are lots of places they want to pound the pulpit about a wife submitting, right? Bam, boom, bam. Submit, woman, that kind of thing. They want to harangue on that. Respect your husbands. You should. This is biblical. We don't, we don't mince words on the scriptures. It says to, to place yourself under his care and to respect him. That is your responsibility. But sometimes we forget that God also tells us to honor our wives. That's the same idea. It's to count as precious. To recognize the value. To realize the worth. That's respect. No husband can expect God to flourish his spiritual life who does not respect his wife, who does not honor his wife, who does not allow his wife to flourish, who does not attempt to learn his wife, who does not lead his wife, who does not love his wife, who does not nurture his wife. You can't expect God to flourish your relationship with him and bless you, your home, and your life if you are not allowing Jesus to be king. When Jesus is king in you, you love your wife. When you love your wife, you will lead her rightly. You will listen to her. You will nurture her and nourish her. You will lead her and learn her and honor her. This will happen. It's a daunting task, but who is sufficient for such things? Our king is able. Our king is able. We need to allow Him into our homes. We must not only allow Jesus to rule our hearts in theory. He must rule our hearts in practice. It is then and only then, when we allow Him to rule our hearts in practice, it is then and only then that we can fulfill the demands of the Word regarding marriages. And it is then and only then that we put the king on display. Listen, that's all I want to do. My heart's desire is to display my king. There is no one greater that's ever lived on the face of this earth. He is the best. There is nothing like him. I want him to be seen. And you know what? When I choose me, Who's being seen? Me. When I choose him, he's seen. My wife is loved. It happens because it's a work of God. It's supernatural. Head back to Colossians 3 for a moment. Colossians 3 for a moment. If you'll actually do do me a favor, turn to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. Colossians 3 and verse 21. Here's here's our next element of Jesus being king. 
the king will enable fathers to disciple rather than discourage their children. The king will enable fathers to disciple rather than discourage their children. Take a look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Here in this passage, we have just the prohibition. Do not provoke your children. That's to rouse to wrath. Don't rouse your child to wrath. I know all too well how to do that. You see, here we are, all flesh and blood. You see, here we are, we're not all redeemed fully. We're redeemed as far as our eternal condition, but it's not finished. God's not done with us. We're not fully sanctified yet. I know all too well how to provoke my children to wrath. It simply comes down to this. All they have to do to allow me that privilege of provoking them to wrath is just disrespect me or their mother. And my pride, oh my pride, it rears its ugly head. It's horrendous for me to see this and to say this publicly. It's the truth. We are not done yet. And when a child disrespects me or my, my wife, it is a surefire way to, to at least my, allow my pride to rear its ugly head. We used to have a practice, and we still have the practice on many occasions to say, all right, go over to this place, and they go there, and we take some time to get perspective and to seek God's grace, to be filled with the Spirit before we go and address issues. And there are times that that's exactly how we do it. And there are other times that that is not what I do when I see disrespect because it, it's like that, it's, it chomps at me. And so I'll go right to it. And my wife will say, you should probably calm down a little bit. And I will say, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm calm. Listen, when you tell a crazy person they're crazy, they don't listen. <laughs> Why? Because they're crazy. See, when you deal with something in the heat of it, and you don't allow the Spirit to rule in your heart, then you just address the behavior in your flesh. And how's that going to work out? You're getting worked up. They're getting worked up. Or kind of like, what's going on with my dad? You know, why, why is he all up in my face like this? Don't provoke your children to wrath. Now, don't misunderstand there's no abuse going on in my house, so don't, don't read into this like crazy. I'm just letting you in that we're all fallen people. And we deal with real life issues. And sometimes we deal rightly with them by God's grace. And other times we deal in our flesh and it's not a pretty scene. And when that not pretty scene comes out, you've got to figure out, okay, what do I do about this? How do I, how do I deal with the fact that I just got in my child's face and, and called them out? Well, they deserve to be corrected. They were disrespectful. It needs to be addressed. But it needs to be addressed, empowered by the Spirit, to disciple them, not to discourage them, 
when we allow our pride to rule us, it produces this very prohibition. We provoke our children to wrath. Why does he not want us to provoke our children to wrath? They will become discouraged. It means disheartened or broken in spirit. Listen, we do not want to break our children's will. You don't want to break your child's will. You want to direct your child's will. Direct it. There's a big difference. If you have a spitfire for a child, he or she is just gung-ho about everything. They act before they think. They're always going. They've got this real intensity about them. If you have a spitfire of a child, you don't want to make them a church mouse. That's breaking their will. So you will have to deal with some spills. So you will have to deal with some bus driving into things and backhoe driving into things and thousands of dollars worth of damage. You'll have to deal with these things. But you don't want to make a, someone that has all this life and energy into someone that sits on a stool and does nothing. That's not channeling their, their direction. You want to direct their passion for something good. We want to help them. You want to disciple them to say, yes, this energy you have, this enthusiasm for life that you have, this carefreeness that you have for life, it's all good as long as it's channeled in the right direction. So we can't raise our children with a cookie-cutter mentality. There are some things I can do with, with Alexis that I can't do with Drew, some things I can do with Drew that I can't do with Aiden. I can't do anything with a little boy. He's just... I'm, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Asa is... Talk about life. He puts Aiden to shame with life. He lives life to the fullest at every second. But there are things that you, you can't do with one that you can do with the other because it's not cookie cutter. We don't want them all to look and smell and act the same. They have their own personality and their own giftedness and things that God wants to do in their lives. God will use it. Be patient and long-suffering. Let them be who they are. Channeled by the Spirit. Channeled by the Spirit. They all exhibit, exhibit different strengths and weaknesses and we want by God's grace for them to freely and rightly live that out. Look at Ephesians 6 for just a minute. I'm only going to take just another couple of moments here. Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I want to just give you quickly some principles. Four goals of discipling your child as a father. So four goals of a discipling father. First of all, avoid exasperation. I already gave one type of illustration. Here are some causes of exasperation. Unreasonableness. Your expectations are too high. Fault finding. You can't see the good things, only the bad things. Neglect. Everything and everyone is more important than your child. You work, 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 or you play, 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 but it's just not with your child. That will exasperate them. Inconsistency. They get in trouble for something. A child, that they say one time and then not the next time. They really don't know what's what, where the clear boundaries are. That will exasperate your child. Edginess. If your child always has to walk around on eggshells around you, they're trying to figure out what kind of a mood you're in, that's not going to be very helpful. John R.W. Stott made this statement 
Discipline in the home must never be arbitrary or unkind. Otherwise, they will become discouraged. Conversely, almost nothing causes a child's personality to blossom and gifts to develop like the positive encouragement of loving, understanding parents. Martin Luther said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he does well. Avoid exasperation. Secondly, a second goal of a discipling father, demonstrate care. Demonstrate care. The word bring them up is the same one in Ephesians 5.29. We already talked about it. It's that of nourishing, nurturing, letting them blossom. Calvin, John Calvin said, let them be kindly cherished. Our children need to know that they are loved, that we love them. That we don't just show our love by buying them clothes and goodies and, and, and toys. We love them with our time. We love them with our investment in them. We must, we must demonstrate this kind of lifestyle. Demonstrate care. Thirdly, discipline consistently. Discipline consistently. One commentator writes, the whole training and education of a child which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals is that training. Everything about it from beginning to end, from soup to nuts. Uh, How to go about life mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We need to discipline them. And and that discipline involves the rod, right? The Bible says in Proverbs 13.24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly or early. We we recognize a pattern, it must be corrected. There's pain that is associated with with wrong actions. Discipline. God himself disciplines us, doesn't he? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines his children. And and we're glad he does, because if we weren't disciplined when we walked away from him, we would say, well, maybe I'm not really a legitimate child. But that's not how He leaves us. He doesn't leave us in our sin. He he chastens us. Why? Because He's angry? No. He chastens us because He loves us and He wants to bring us back into a fruitful position again. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Our discipline must mirror God's discipline. That we are seeking God's glory in their lives, not just to be respected, not just to be obeyed, not so that other Christian families can see my Christian family and say, oh, what a great job they did. No. It's about what Jesus is doing. The only way a child ever turns out right is when Jesus rules their heart. Not when Daddy does. Not when Mommy does. It's when Jesus rules their heart. Same thing for us dads. You want to be a good father? Jesus must rule your heart. And so we finish with this last principle, last goal of a a discipling father is to disciple continuously or constantly. Constantly. I'll just remind you of what happened back in Samuel. Samuel chapter 3. You remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas? They weren't doing the right thing. It was pretty sick. Involving themselves with prostitutes outside of the tabernacle or temple. It's bad news, friends, what was going on with his sons. and The problem is Eli 
didn't invest in them. He didn't admonish them. The word admonish has the same idea if you connect it from the, the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know the New Testament is written in Greek. It's the same word we're talking about back here in Ephesians. That he didn't train them. He was more interested in, in being very overweight and serving in the temple than to take care of his own children, to train them. Well, the Bible has given us a constant on this one in Deuteronomy 6. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you sit, when you're walking on the way, guess what we do? We tell them that God is Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. Hey, listen, I don't know what they're going to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what He's telling us to do. Jesus is King. And we'll know whether Jesus is King in our lives. We'll know whether we let Jesus into our house. You know how we tell? We'll have wives who are enabled by the King to place themselves under the loving care of their own husband. We'll have husbands who selflessly love their wives. We'll have fathers who rather than discourage their children, disciple them. This is how we know if Jesus is King in our home. One of the hardest things that we have to learn fathers is that our children aren't perfect. That they have flaws and inconsistencies, just like we have flaws and inconsistencies. How do we deal with this? We point them to the one who is constant. His name is Jesus. He's the king. Who is sufficient for these things? God has not simply left you and me with instructions on how to build a happy family. He has given us Himself as the ultimate resource to fulfill His own design for the family. So we ask ourselves again, do you let the King in your home? A godly man, a real man, is not one who has big muscles, though he may, A real man is the one who surrenders his heart, the control of his life, to King Jesus. And you can see the evidence therewith. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and faithful. You've provided us with everything we need. You have not simply given us instructions. You've given us yourself. Thank you that we have enough We have all that we need to fulfill what you've called us to fulfill. To have homes that are brimming with joy, brimming with peace, and reflective of your Son, our Savior and King. We pray this in his name. Amen.